Try one more time. Good evening, all. Afternoon, maybe. Um, massive welcome to KXC. If you're joining us on the live stream, huge welcome to you. Um, for those that I've not met before, my name's Pete. Together my wife, B, we lead the church here. So huge welcome. Look forward to connecting if we haven't connected already. Um, we're in a teaching series on Psalm 23. Hopefully some slides will appear on the screen. And week by week, we've been reading the Psalm together. So um, why don't we continue um, with that practice? So we're going to read it together. Let's go. The Lord is my shepherd. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us now through your word. And Lord, we, we ask that you'd bless us this afternoon with your presence. May your presence be thick amongst us. Lord, we want to have undivided hearts, hearts that seek first and foremost your presence. So come and be amongst us as we unpack your scriptures. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're in a teaching series of Psalm 23, but we're going to take a break from the teaching series this Sunday. Um, oh, excitement in the room from at least three people. Um, so that I can share some reflections of a trip myself and Rich Decas and John Carter took to Asbury, a university in Kentucky. Some of you may know of this, may have read articles about this. The outpouring of the Spirit, some are calling it revival. I'm guessing most of them will have no idea what's going on. So let me just name that on February the 8th, Wednesday, there was a chapel service that sparked a move of the Spirit that's now been spreading across campuses, universities all over the States. I would say it's rumbling here in the UK. The dam is about to break. It's very exciting. Um, but I want to share some reflections on um, that journey, what I've seen happen in Asbury and what I believe is, is coming here in the UK. Um, but before I do that, I want to make a link to the passage. Um, so if you remember, if you were here week one in the teaching series. I said that Psalm 23 has a chiastic structure to which the response was mainly, I don't really care and I don't really understand what that is. But let me just name what a chiastic structure is in poetry. When you start and end in the same place and then you move towards the centre. So the structure looks like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. So it looks something like this when it comes to Psalm 23. The Psalm starts with the theme of God as shepherd and us enjoying proximity to the shepherd. That's also how it ends. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then you move one step further in, in this poem to talk about food and drink. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Um, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet, leads me beside quiet waters. And then towards the end of the, the psalm, you have a similar theme where God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He feeds us, he sustains us. And then move one step further in, the theme is rescue and security. He brings back my soul and guides me along the right path for his name's sake. So when I get lost, he as a shepherd comes after me and puts me back 
on the right path. Later in the psalm, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. You are my protector, essentially. And it keeps moving further in. And in a chiastic structure, the climactic moment is the centre. And the centre is that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil for you are... You are, there we go. The priority of the psalm, the climactic moment is David saying, I've learned so much about the character and nature of God, but the thing I keep coming back to, keep coming back to is that He's with me and His presence is all that I need. And that would be a summary of what we experience in Asbury. The outpouring of the Spirit looked like an outpouring of the presence of God. Um, and what we saw was truly, truly beautiful. And I know it would be tempting to think that because the church in the West is in chronic decline, um, that anything that's happened that's remotely positive, the church, like press, is going to jump on it and be like hugely, hugely excited. And maybe some of you are thinking this is the moment where Pete gets incredibly excited and his voice goes really high pitch because in moments like this it's easy to get excited but I, I want to say this is more than just the Christian press globally sort of like taking notice this is actually the secular press leaning in like Asbury's caught the attention, not just of the church globally, but of the world. CNN wrote a news piece about it. Sky News, the list goes on. Um, this is one from the New York Times, um, an Insta story that then pointed towards an article that was written. Um, you can see if you look closely that even John Carter liked this post. So it must be of the Lord. Let me read it. For nearly two weeks... More than 50,000 people, it actually became over 100,000 people, have made a pilgrimage, I love that language, to a tiny Christian college in Kentucky for what some scholars and worshippers describe as the nation's first major spiritual revival in the 21st century. When the secular press are beginning to say, maybe this is the beginning of the first revival we've seen for a very, very long time, that that should cause faith levels in us to start to rise. As I said, it started on February the 8th. It was a compulsory chapel service for all those at Asbury University. It's a Christian university, so everyone had to be in the room. Apparently, it was a really unremarkable chapel service. The guy who preached, a guy called Zach, at the end of the service, texted his wife, said, I've just preached. I had an absolute stinker. Could you put some food in the oven? Um, I'm coming home. Um, but after that, most of the students left the room. 19 remained behind, um, convicted of their sin. And they went to the front and they clung onto the altar rail. And in that moment, they were desperately wanting to be right with God. And the spirit landed in power. Now, after a while, other students were saying, hang on, apparently something's kicking off in the chapel again. They started coming back in hundreds later, thousands. And over the course of the next 16 days, over 100,000 people came to experience, be part of what the Lord was doing there. I love this story. Two weeks before the revival broke, there was a prayer meeting of those working at the university. <clears throat> At the prayer meeting, one of the professors, a Hebrew scholar, um, basically said at the end of the, the meeting, hey guys, I, I think we're right on the edge of something. Like, I think there's a dam that's literally about to break. I can feel it in my bones. And apparently the room were like, yeah, that's great. Really excited, like praying the dam breaks. Um, and then within two weeks, 
like you have 100,000 people from all over the world descend on this tiny town called Wilmore, hungry to encounter Jesus. Um, something extraordinary is going on. And I guess I want to say to us as a church family, this isn't a moment just to celebrate what's taking place in Asbury and what is spreading across universities in the US. This is a moment for us to get excited. Like, I believe the dam is about to break. I feel a little bit like that Hebrew scholar, I don't know what of Hebrew, by the way, um, who basically saying, I feel like we're on the edge of something. And I can see sometimes people look at me like, yeah, great, looking forward to it. But I, I genuinely feel we're on the edge of something. What's broken out across universities in the UK, I believe it's about to break here. Um, and I guess I want to say to us as a church, let's get ready. I believe some very exciting days lie ahead of us. So can I name four reflections um, that I've had from my time in Asbury, talking to some of the leaders there, being in the room, worshipping with these university students. Four reflections. I couldn't get them to name with the same letter, so I'm stepping outside of the box using a different preaching tool um, where they start with different letters. I hope you can lean into that. Um, These would be my reflections around the purity of worship, the centrality of confession, the priority of youth, and the importance of leadership. Let me start with the purity of worship. I would love to try and articulate to you what was going on in the room. The problem is any word that I could find would be insufficient for what was going on. It it was so beautiful, words wouldn't really be able to capture it. I'm going to do my best, but I just want you to know when we walked into the room, fill in the blank, I, I don't know absolutely stunning. At one level, it was totally underwhelming. Just a regular worship gathering, like so understated. There was no smoke machines, um, no lighting. God can move without smoke machines and lighting. Who knew? Um, There were no screens with lyrics or lovely slides. Um, There was none of that. Um, The sound quality in the room wasn't incredible. Um, The worship leaders, they weren't seasoned worship leaders. They were sort of 19, 20, 21 year olds at the beginning of of learning the craft of leading the room in worship. So musically, it sounded pretty ropey at times, right? They started songs in, in the wrong key, basically, and at the wrong pace. But you know what? None of it mattered. Should I tell you why none of it mattered? Because the presence of God in the room was so thick, no one was focused on the music. It it was extraordinary. Like the worship literally was going on and on and on for the first few days. It was 24-7 and then it was certain times and it basically became a 16-day prayer gathering, mainly worship. And I didn't hear any complaints from the young people of like, when's this going to wrap up? This has been going on for 16 days and I'm bored of singing. I didn't hear anyone saying, like I'm looking forward to the teaching. I feel like I'm I'm looking for deeper teaching. I want to be intellectually fed, right? These are some of the comments you hear in consumer Christianity, like I've got certain needs. I want some deep exposition because I want to be fed by scripture. And all of that's beautiful. And I'm exaggerating to make the point, but no one was saying any of that. They were basically saying the presence of God is so thick in this place. Like I, I can almost agree with David. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Everything I I need is here in this place. 
And like these, these 20-somethings, even those that had no faith and were coming in, they were basically saying, I didn't know what I was searching for, but now I know it's, it's here. I've just realised it's called the presence of God. There were stories of students who were encountering Jesus. And after the first day or two, they started bringing in their mattress because they didn't want to go back to their rooms to sleep. They didn't want to step outside of the presence of God. That's called a move of the Spirit. Students apparently started packing lunches and dinners, like three meals for the day, because they wanted to make sure they had food, because they didn't want to leave the sanctuary, because the presence of God was so thick in that place. If you read any stories of revivals, the Hebridean revival, the Welsh revival, the Azusa Street revival, it all sounds so familiar. People become obsessed with the presence of God, and we saw it in that place. There was a moment in the worship, we were singing this simple refrain, and, and I genuinely wondered if the angels were joining in. The volume just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And I was like, are, are the angels with us? I, I knew we were also involved because I could hear some ropey harmonies from behind me that could not have been angelic. I think Rich Decast was one of them. But I was like, it sounds like maybe the angels are chipping in here. It was just so, so beautiful. Um, these young guys, they weren't ministering to the room, these Gen Z worship leaders, they, they were ministering first and foremost to Jesus. It was almost like at times they were unaware of the room. They were so fixated with the person of Jesus and the room just joined along with them. I realized on day two or three, we had some of the stories of this, that the, when, when it's 24-7 worship, it's easy to get knackered, right? So once you've led like 90 minutes of worship, you've probably run out of songs that you know off by heart, plus you feel pretty spent. So the worship teams would be on rotation. But they recognised the presence of God was so thick in the room that it was absolutely essential for them as worship leaders to be right before God. That they couldn't lead the room into the presence of God if they weren't right before God. So they created a consecration room off stage. This replaces the green room where the VIPs have some lovely snacks and drinks, right? That's how we've moved as a church. That's how far we've gone from the purity of, of worship. But, but in this place, it's like, no, we need a consecration room. And before these 19, 20, 21 year olds would go on stage and lead worship, they'd spend half an hour in the consecration room. In the consecration room, which is essentially like a holy of holies, there would be intercessors and prophets praying over the worship leaders. The worship leaders would be confessing their sin, pouring pouring out the gunk because they wanted to get right with God. So by the time they moved from the consecration room um, to the, the stage and led people in worship, the purity of the worship, it, it was just beautiful. You could see it in the simplicity and the purity of their hearts. And it was so deeply, deeply moving. For those in the room that were around in the 80s and 90s, and just looking at the demographics here, that's probably not loads. Um, but there was a move of the spirit in the 80s and 90s that became known as the charismatic renewal movement here in the UK. Um, the Toronto blessing in 1994 was a key part of that. And perhaps the defining feature of that move of the spirit was the church rediscovering the power of the spirit. People were talking about the signs and wonders, the gifts of the spirit, healing and deliverance and the miraculous. If that was the defining marker of the charismatic renewal movement. I think the defining marker of this revival that's just beginning to break is the church rediscovering intimacy with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. No one was talking about manifestations. There weren't huge demonstrations of power, but the thickness of God's presence was tangible in the room. 
And I guess I want to say the dam is about to break here in the UK. I sense it. I believe it. We need to get ready. I feel like I've been trying to function as a prophet, not a particularly good one, but as a prophet over the last few months, trying to say, I can see something on the horizon. I can't see it clearly, but I, I, I'm going to give you an outline of what I can see. What I feel now after my trip to Kentucky, to, to Asbury, is that I've now seen up close what I was pointing to a few months ago, right? I've seen the other side and I guess I want to say to you guys it's it's beautiful it's coming we should be really excited so this is what I was pointing towards if you go back to the let the light in series just put your hand in the air if you were in the room for let the light in series okay at least five people that's encouraging um so it was a series about um holiness essentially and we looked at this psalm psalm 24 who may ascend the mountain of the lord who may stand in his holy place the one who has clean hands and a beautiful reading who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god they will receive blessing from the lord and vindication from god their savior if you know the story of the hebridean revival um it really begins in a prayer meeting where a young deacon basically reads out psalm 24 and then falls into a trance under the power of god this psalm has been a key psalm being read regularly um at the asbury outpouring and it essentially says if you want to enjoy this mountaintop experience experience the thickness of God's presence key to that pursuit is a purity of heart and purity of heart means an undivided heart a heart that longs for one thing the psalmist says one thing I ask one thing I seek that I may dwell in your house all the days of my life part of my repentance and maybe part of our repentance will be Lord if we're being really honest we've been divided I've really longed for your presence, but there's other things I've longed for. And at times I've longed for them more than I've longed for your presence. I haven't had an undivided heart. I've had a divided heart. Lord, I repent, purify my heart and give me clean hands because I want to ascend this mountain because I want to enjoy the sweetness of your presence. We told the story from Mark 10 in that teaching series of Jesus with the rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. That's the first knee slide we read of in scripture. And I'm going to keep telling that gag until it lands really well in the room. I've used it three or four times. It's never fully landed in the room, but it will one day. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And then Jesus quotes six of the commandments. Um, and there's debate amongst scholars. Why, why did he only quote six? There's 10. Did he forget four? Like, I mean, ten's a lot to remember, right? Why did he only quote six of them? What's going on there? And, and this is Jesus in the most beautiful and gentle, loving way, exposing that the, this rich young ruler had a divided heart, right? Because what four commandments did Jesus omit? And it's the ones about worship. You shall have no other gods you shall not make idols, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, you shall remember the Sabbath, which is a day set apart for the presence of God. Yeah, this guy had a divided heart. He wanted more of Jesus, but he wanted more money, right? And was defined by his wealth and he went away sad because he couldn't dethrone the idol that had grabbed his heart. When we talk about holiness, 
what we really mean is undivided devotion. Like when we often talk about holiness in the church, our minds go towards moral purity, righteous living, and that's entirely right. But I would describe that as the fruit of holiness. The root of holiness is right worship. And it's the root that leads to the fruit. When people worship rightly, when you get the first four commandments right, the rest follow. And what I saw in Asbury were students like Gen Z or Gen Z, as they call it out there, like encountering Jesus and their hearts were being purified. They were becoming undivided in their devotion, desiring one thing, the presence of God. We said in that series, if you want the kingdom, it starts with undivided devotion to the king. And and I guess what I was like pointing to, trying to find my best language for, I could just see it on the horizon. I've now seen it up close. It's coming. The Lord is gonna move amongst us. And what he's looking for is undivided hearts, hearts that desire one thing. And when our hearts are like that, and when his presence land, you'll realize like King David, there's only one thing you ever wanted or needed, which was the presence of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. When he's in the room, I lack nothing. His presence is all I need. Here's the the second thing, second observation or reflection. It's the centrality of confession. What we saw at Asbury is wave after wave after wave of students confessing their sins. So I don't know how the revival started. Was it 19 students confessing their sins, repenting, and God basically saying, I'm attracted to that purity. I'm gonna pour out my presence and my power. Was it like that? Or was it God pouring out his presence and his power and 19 in the room are like, oh my gosh, God is in the room. I wanna get right before him. Chicken or egg, don't know, right? But what I do know is the presence of God in the room was such that wave after wave of student was like, I want this, his presence. And I recognise there's things in me, mindsets, attitude, behavioural patterns, in other words, sin, that is an obstacle to me drawing closer. I so crave the presence. I just want to confess this stuff that's in the way so I can come closer to God. Like There weren't many like phenomenal talks about sin and our need for confession. It was something that God initiated in the room. His presence was such that people were desperately trying to get right with him. Now we were staying, Rich Decas and myself, with an amazing couple that became family to us over a few days. So John and Helen, if you're watching on the live stream, um, shout out to you guys. Um, and Helen spoke us through like a model she used when she was praying for um, some of the students that were coming to the front. And it was, it's basically four steps beginning, all beginning with C. So preaching device, love it, right? So firstly, she'd say, how can I pray for you? And more often than not, what they came with is they wanted to confess their sins. They wanted to get right with God. So she gave them space just to pour it all out. And it wasn't like a short, oh, I'm struggling with anger. Oh, don't worry about it. We all struggle with anger. I announce you're forgiven. Go, you are free. It wasn't like a quick moment like that. Some of the students were up there like for half an hour, like just pouring out the stuff, basically pouring out like sexual sins and suicidal ideation and all the stuff they'd been carrying around for so long, just pouring it out, pouring it out. So she would give them space just to confess their sins. And that was the first C. Second C was to cancel any permission that we'd given the enemy through our sins to have access to our hearts and minds and thinking. Sometimes what sin does, it just creates an open door for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc in our 
our hearts, minds and thinking. And she's like, what we need to do is, is give some of these students um, an opportunity to say to the enemy, I'm taking the keys back now. Like, I didn't realise, but I'd given you permission to push forward your purposes in my heart. And, and I'm taking the keys back. You do not have permission anymore. I, I do not give you any authority to be at work in my heart, my soul, my being. I'm taking the permission back. You do not have permission to be at work in my life. So confession leading towards this cancelling that permission and then commanding all darkness to go. So simple prayers of like, we now command all darkness to flee. And these young students would be going through these steps, a confession, cancelling permission, commanding darkness to flee and then come Holy Spirit, welcoming the Holy Spirit. Now imagine this, when you've got like probably two and a half thousand people in the room and you've got over the course of hours, because the worship went on, not for 90 minutes, but hours upon hours upon hours. So you literally have waves of students coming to confess, waves of students. Um, and you'd have thought in an environment where people are speaking out their darkest thoughts, their darkest sins, there'd be a heaviness in the room. But there wasn't. And you saw that when the students came away from this altar rail, that their faces were radiating the glory of God. Their countenance had fundamentally shifted. Like there was joy in the room. There was dancing in parts of the room. There was such a lightness to the room because people were getting free after potentially years of being enslaved by these addictions and these patterns of thinking. Let me just share some reflections um, I have after seeing this. Um, firstly, I, I think a season is coming where evangelism will feel easy once more. As we saw wave and wave of people repenting, we also saw wave after wave of people coming to faith in Jesus. I think over the last few decades in our evangelism in the West, we've been desperately trying to convince people, number one, that they're sinful. They've been unconvinced, by the way. Two, it's okay because they have a saviour who has power to save, right? We've been desperately trying to convince people, you're sinful, just trust me. You're sinful, original sin, Genesis 3. Just trust me, you're sinful, but it's okay. You have a saviour who has power to save. But people have been unconvinced, right? But what we saw in Asbury were students, young people, Gen Z, flocking to the front. They didn't need any convincing that there was stuff in their heart and in their thinking that wasn't aligned with the ways of the kingdom of God. It's almost when the presence of God is that thick, you're so hungry to draw close to God that it just becomes evident there's certain things hold, holding you back. And you're like, I, I need to, I want to get rid of the junk because I want to draw close to perfect love and perfect grace. I want to draw close to my Father, so I need to push this stuff to one side. And when God's presence is thick in the room, you fully know that He has power to save. Right? You're not doubting, does He have power to save? You know, because He's in the room and you're longing to draw close. And I just have a sense when the dam breaks here, we're going to see loads and loads of people wanting to draw close to the presence of Jesus, realising that everything they've been searching for, longing for, is found in an encounter with His grace. Here's the second observation. I, I think we need to reclaim confidence in the full proclamation of the gospel. Right? I think we've been preaching like subversions of the gospel that contain some truth and some beautiful truth, but not the full truth. I'll give you an example of this. I think at times we've been leaning into what theologians call the therapeutic gospel. 
right? If you go back to the Middle Ages, the dominant inner wrestle for people was, I feel guilty. I need to get rid of this guilt because I want to be right with God, right? So the proclamation of forgiveness of sins was front and center. Um, The dominant struggle of of our generation isn't guilt and they want to get right with God. It's shame. They feel a deep sense of unworthiness. Um, And our response has been to preach a gospel that what you need is to encounter the love of the Father where His love overwhelms you and drowns out these voices of shame that break the power of the sense of unworthiness where you recognise your true identity in Him as you are sons and daughters. And, And that is beautiful, right? That is beautiful, but it's not the full gospel proclamation. Like the full gospel proclamation is the reason we experience shame is because we've experienced and chosen sin. And the sin leads to the shame. And you can have encounters with love that turn down the volume on the voices of shame and the feelings of unworthiness. But if you want to really deal with the underlying symptoms, you need forgiveness of your sins. You need the power of the cross to set you free, to separate you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. And when you experience the power of the cross, you recognise that it is at the cross that we're reconciled to the Father, where we encounter His love and His love overpowers our shame and we begin to step into fullness of life. Can I hear an amen? Right? So it's great just to proclaim the love of the Father and ask the Spirit to draw people into the love of the Father. But the full gospel proclamation is that Jesus died for our sins, rose to new life, poured out His Spirit so that resurrection life is now coursing through our veins. We are a new creation, right? He's done everything necessary to forgive us of our sin. So we need to preach the full gospel. Here's the the last reflection on the centrality of confession. What we saw out there was a model for deliverance ministry. Now, I know deliverance ministry, when you talk about deliverance ministry, some people start freaking out. You've watched a chunk of Netflix, documentaries of of people doing exorcisms. um, And you're like, whoa, is this people shaking around violently and frothing at the mouth? Um, And what we saw in Asbury was a very gentle and beautiful model of deliverance. Um, one, of, one of my convictions has been for, for some time, again, I feel like I've been trying to point to this, like badly saying, I think the church needs to rediscover deliverance ministry. But now I've seen it in action. I'm like, it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. It's nothing to be fearful of. It is totally transformational. Um, what I tried to say in the Let the Light In series is, do you remember this series um, where we basically said, we want to journey from the darkness to the light. And we used this um, um, figure of Agrius Ponticus from the early centuries of, of church history who basically named the seven deadly sins. And then the church responded saying, we want to invite people out of the darkness into the light of the seven kingdom virtues. Um, how do you journey from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And we basically said, it needs to be deliverance. It needs to be deliverance. If you track the journey of the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land, they have a moment of deliverance. This is the Red Sea. This is an act of God. They did not contribute to their salvation. Pure gift. 
hand of God, right? And then they step into freedom on the other side of the Red Sea and they're given the law as like a pathway so that they can pursue holiness and become more like God, his representatives on the earth. But the key part of the story is this moment of deliverance. And I guess what I've seen in our generation, which is beautiful, but it comes with a warning, is many people rediscovering spiritual practices and spiritual formation. Like when you see 20 and 30-year-olds talking about Sabbathing and fasting and praying, you're like, this is interesting. I didn't talk about this in my 20s or 30s, but like people are rediscovering spiritual formation. But we need moments where we encounter the power of God to deliver us from our sin and from our addictions. If you practice the spiritual disciplines while still in Egypt, still enslaved to your sin, you'll find a growing frustration that how come these spiritual practices aren't getting me free? And these spiritual practices weren't designed to get you free. It is the cross that sets you free. That is our Red Sea moment. And then with our freedom, these spiritual disciplines help us live in that freedom, pursue Christ-likeness and participate in His purposes. If you practice the spiritual disciplines without deliverance, you'll find a growing frustration, right? But if you can find moments where you bring yourself with some of the darkness that you've been wrestling with into encounters with Jesus where you experience deliverance and then you begin to step into spiritual formation, you won't find frustration, you'll find fruitfulness of like, oh my goodness, God is enlarging this freedom in my heart, soul, mind and thinking. Um, I've seen a model of deliverance there and, and it was so beautiful. Students, right, not just being forgiven, but being set free, lives being transformed. And oh my goodness, don't we in our generation need some of that? Like so many of us have just become familiar with the darkness, the, the thoughts of despair, the oppression that rests upon us and upon our culture. It's become the norm and we've just embraced it as the norm. What if we said it isn't the norm and we're asking for the light of heaven to break in upon us, the dawn from on high to break upon us? Here's the third um, reflection then, is the priority of youth. This movement was led by the young, reaching the young. It's about empowering um, the Gen Z generation who wants something real and pure, not hyped up or manufactured. Like what we've learned is that what people really want isn't smoke machines and lights. Wow, what a surprise. What they want is the presence of God, right? Fascinating to me that Loads of celebrity pastors and worship leaders were emailing in the team at Asbury. We're happy to come and lead worship. And we're happy to come and speak. And the response was, now you're right. The 19-year-olds, they've got something absolutely stunning. They're ushering people into what feels like the undiluted presence of God. So come and visit and enjoy it, but you don't need to come and lead. Right? How beautiful is that? Here's another beautiful thing that we, we saw happen is that people were only known by first names. They didn't want to know second names. So no one asked me for my surname. Are you Pete Hughes? It's like Pete. Even the guy that, that preached the sermon that launched the outpouring, um, his name's Zach. And the YouTube clip of the talk has gone viral, even though he said he had a stinker. He's been receiving like hundreds upon hundreds of speaking invites, but they refused to give surnames at Asbury. So I met him, had a number of conversations. I still only know him as Zach, right? Because they don't want to create personalities. They don't want to build platforms for people. This is about the presence of God and they want to empower the young. 
So this is, this is my encouragement. If you're under the age of 25 or close to that, if you're just over that, you can sneak in if you really want to. <laughs> if you consider yourself Gen Z or close to Gen Z, I, I want to say this is your time and it is your turn. The Spirit is about to be poured out on your generation, right? I, I believe it will move from Gen Z and actually be a blessing to the whole church because when God blesses one, He always wants them to be a vehicle through which the whole are blessed. I believe it will spread, but for some reason, God in His sovereignty has chosen. It's going to start with Gen Z and I'm going to elevate some Gen Zers into leadership um, and they're going to do leadership in an entirely different way, which isn't about being a celebrity or building platforms and, and building pedestals. None of that. They'll just be known by their first names. But what they'll hunger for is the presence of God, the presence of God above all else. If you're under the age of 25 or close to that, I, I want to say, like, get ready, it's coming. And it's going to hit you and it's going to hit your peers. And some of you will be thrust into significant leadership positions and you may feel in over your head, out of your depth, but you got this. This is your time and this is your turn. Second thing I want to say for the over 40s in the room, which is me and a handful of others, right? Like this is a moment for us to step up to as mentors, as coaches, as spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Like the younger generation, they're about to step in. There's going to be a succession moment, a handing on of the baton. But that doesn't mean they don't need their elders. They really do need us. They need us to champion them to be right behind them, to be there to mop up the mess when things get messy. And it will get messy, by the way. I know what you like. Uh, it will get messy. But for us to be there, um, to hand the baton on and to release them into what the Lord has for them. Listen to these words. This is a theologian from Regents College, John Paul Lotz, who said this about the Asbury outpouring. There was no leader, no rival, no envy, no pride or humility, meekness, gentle hearts, stumbling sinners, tender students serving thousands of curious visitors in their love for mercy without knowing they're doing so. It is legit. Gen Z or Gen Z write off so graciously allowing us to peek in on this surprising work of God as they serve us like priests, unconsciously dragging us into the presence of the Lord through young, redeemed, romantic hearts for God. Christ is being honoured. God is being glorified, the Spirit is at liberty. The real awkward, cringeworthy gawkers of the over 40s like myself, I was in that category, who can't put down their phones. The Zs left theirs at home. When Gen Z leave their phones at home, I would say that's, that's beyond water into wine in terms of miracle. <laughs> it's, it's not quite resurrection, but I would put it beyond water into wine. Like when Gen Z leave their phones behind, like... Like it was, the, it was the old folk like me, like, this is amazing, let's capture this so I can show my wife and kids. It, the Gen Z crowd, they just left their phones at home and we should be attentive. Why? When you're addicted to your iPhone, why would you leave it behind? Because in the presence of God, you realise you don't want any obstacle. If this is an obstacle, you want to get it out of the way because you realise what David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. If his presence in the room, I don't want a single distraction. I just want to engage with his presence. Leads to my final point, the importance of leadership. The leadership that we saw at Asbury was nameless, faceless, not creating any celebrities. The leadership wasn't absent. If you watch this from afar on the live stream or read articles, you might think, are there any spiritual mothers and fathers like helping steward this outpouring? And the answer is absolutely there was. Um, but it was behind the scenes. 
It wasn't absent, but it was invisible. It was men and women with servant hearts marked by deep, deep humility, carrying some of the weight of this, functioning as spiritual parents, championing the young. Um, And I guess I've been trying to say, I've felt this conviction in my own life. You'll have heard me teach about this in the, the first talk in this series that this is a moment for some of us to step into the role of shepherds under Jesus, the good shepherd, that we don't just need more leaders, we need more spiritual mothers and fathers. This was my conviction um, in our sabbatical a few years ago that my first 10 years of leading KXC had been marked out by leadership. Um, Leaders tend to be driven by destination. They point to something ahead. They create and live with dissatisfaction about here and now, but cast vision for what could be, and they drive people towards a destination. Leaders tend to be fairly driven, and we need leaders in the church. I still feel called to leadership at KXC and within the wider church, but I also want to function as a spiritual father, a parent, and parents aren't called just to drive towards destination they're called to be present with delight what my kids require from me is to be emotionally spiritually mentally physically present with them not with dissatisfaction but isn't this moment beautiful and what a privilege to be on this journey and isn't God doing great things and it's time for some of us to function like spiritual parents and I saw it at Asbury what I'd been pointing towards like I've seen it outworked where the spiritual parents were off the stage. 90% of those on the stage at Asbury were like 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Every so often, someone over the age of 40 would step on the stage. But, but the, the leadership team were there helping steward this moment. They were off the stage making really hard decisions, like mopping up the mess. When celebrity pastors and preachers were wanting to get involved, they're like, no, don't worry. The, the Gen Z guys are carrying this. When journalists were like, we want to get in the room and record this and make a story no don't worry about this we're not trying to establish profile here this is about the presence of God they were stewarding it behind the scenes in the most beautiful way and I I felt God say to me be like you might have to get ready pretty quick to hand over the microphone and just release way more leadership to the younger generation so leadership and spiritual parenting might look like for me being less on stage less with profile behind the scenes mopping up mess champ the young and and my heart is like Lord I want to do that Lord I want to do that if that's what this moment requires you can count me in I want to function as a spiritual father and I want some of our leaders to step into this call of spiritual parenting and and what it requires and this is a conversation I had with one of the senior leaders of of this who, who was helping steward what was happening he basically said Pete you need to get ready to deal with any conflict that you're experiencing or conflict in your team. He said, in the build-up to this outpouring, I realised amongst the seven, they became a little team carrying the weight of this. Amongst the seven, most of those relationships were significantly tested in the two years building up to this. Like just things of conflict that they had to deal with. And I look back and I realise God was testing our friendships to see if we could carry the weight of his glory. He was testing the branch to see if it could bear the weight of the abundance of fruit that it it was going to get ready to carry. And I guess I want to say to us as a church family, if there's any conflict you need to deal with, my encouragement is like, like, do it now. 
Like, I, I really believe this. The dam is about to break. I've seen what it looks like when it breaks and outpouring. Just the thickness of God's presence. I'm longing for it. And one of the things we can do to get ready is, is just like purify our relationships. Let, let's make sure our relationships, our family can bear the weight of the abundance that may well come. What is our response very briefly? Consecration, confession, desperation. Consecration. 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Like consecration literally means to be set apart. This is a moment where we need to consecrate ourselves. Like set ourselves apart, ready for what the Lord wants to do. And what does consecration look like? I think it does look like confession. I think it looks like saying, God, we're so hungry for your presence that if there's anything in our lives that are an obstacle, by your kindness, can you reveal it? It's your kindness that leads to repentance. So could you be really kind and just reveal the stuff that's in the way that I might confess and then repent, turn around, turn towards Jesus. So consecration, confession, finally desperation. Genesis 18, Abraham has this encounter with God. God's clearly on the move. And this is Abraham's response. He says this in verse three, if I found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. I I can see you're moving, God. Please don't forget me. And please don't forget my family. Do not pass us by. Having seen what's happened at Asbury, my heart's response is like, Lord, please don't pass Europe by. To hear the stories of this spreading across universities in the US, I'm so excited, but please don't pass Europe by. And please don't pass the UK by. And please don't pass London by. London needs an outpouring of your spirit. And please don't pass KXC by. And please don't pass my family by. And please don't pass me by. I'm so hungry for your presence. I'm so hungry for your presence. So this would be a moment for us to fan into flame the gift of faith by which I mean to say, Lord, would you stir up within us a deep hunger for your presence so that when you move in power, we realise the thing we most long for, it's found in your presence. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Nothing.